a slave. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved. What is it we were enslaved to, Paul says, to our sinful desires, to our passions. So whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, one is in need. The law can't save. Why? Because there are these elementary, there are these basic things about humanity. There is a sinful nature that all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, see, that's what Paul is pointing at. But it's not just Gentiles who, who have a sinful nature, so do Jews. They were given the law, but the law didn't, didn't restrain at all their tendency, their condition of sin. If you think back to the picture of the school kid, it's the kid who, who's just the naughty, mischievous kid. It doesn't matter if the parents sat next to him or not. He's going to misbehave. What Paul is saying is, that's what, that's what we are. We're these naughty, mischievous, sinful people who even though the law is there, even though the guardian is there, we still follow in our sinful practices. That's true of the Jew. That's true of the Gentile. There are these passions, sinful passions, that rule us, that enslave us. Verse 4, but when, but when, there is a change of that condition. Paul says that's what we were. We were under the law as our guardian. We were enslaved to these elementary passions and principles of the world. But, but, something has happened. God has done something. So secondly, we look at our past redemption. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption. Our past redemption. Paul notes three things about that. One, he notes that it came at an appointed time. When the fullness of time had come, when does God redeem his people? In the fullness of time. When God has so ordered things that it is now that time has been filled up. That all that needed to precede the coming of his son has taken place. And you and I might tend to think of prophecies. And that would be rightly so. We, we certainly would do that. And that would be true. All the prophecies that had been stated by God have been fulfilled. So at the proper time, God sent forth his son. But it means more than just the prophecy. This is the fullness of time. This is what God had determined even before the foundations of the world had been made. Even before those prophecies had been offered. God had already determined when he was going to send his son. Not in a general sense that he was going to someday at some time send his son, but specifically, the specific year, the specific month, the specific day, the specific moment 
of his birth has all been ordained by God. We know exactly none of that. Correct? But God does. God knows the exactness of that. We, we can never determine those moments, those incidences, the exact hour, second of a child's birth. Even those of you who have the, those scheduled procedures, you know that doesn't always happen. And you know it doesn't always happen according to plan. And you know it's not always at the same time. Though there might be a time they take you to the room, but there is never given. Your child will be born at exactly such and such a time. There are too many, far too many things that can, can rule that up. But God knew. And I don't think we often appreciate that. I don't think we often appreciate the exactness of the moment historically in time when Jesus was born. We focus so much on the fact that, oh, he was born, he was born, that we forget there is a moment in time he was born. Part of what we seek to do with Bethlehem Alive is to, is to help people to understand not only that Jesus came, yes, that's, that's front and center. That, that's the most important thing, yes. But that he came in a time, in a setting, in a historic occasion. Why? Because you and I believe in the historic reality of the birth of Jesus Christ. We don't believe in the general reality of Jesus coming. That's what you find in liberal Christianity. Just sort of, oh, it really doesn't matter when. No, it does matter when. It does matter that it was Bethlehem. It does matter that it is in that time period. The way people dressed, the way people acted, that which was taking place, the language of the day. And we're trying to get people to think of the fact there is the historical reality of the birth of Jesus. Well, one of the things we've been doing with our, our Beyond group this year is we've been going through Lee Strobel's evidence of, of Christ and, and, and one of his points in, in terms of apologetics and in arguing the truth uh, of the reality of Christ is first of all, you have, to, you have to help people to understand that Jesus was a real historical person. They're never going to accept the reality of Christ as Savior from sin until you come to the reality of Christ as the person. That's what we're going to seek to do in that gym. The reality, the historic reality. God had an appointed time. That he had determined, it's now right. This is it. But the this is it is not that momentary decision. It's a decision that God had before earth was created. This is what I shall do on such and such a date, at such and such a time, at such and such a moment at such and such a place. And what is it that in the fullness of time God was going to do? 
is going to send the appointed son. God was going to send forth his son. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. And although Paul uses that language here that that God sent forth his son, we know, for example, from Philippians chapter 2, that the son also willingly comes. He doesn't come as a rebellious child. He doesn't come kicking and screaming. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go. I don't. No, he comes willingly as an obedient child. Sent forth by the Father. Yes, a, a miraculous conception. No doubt. God sent forth his son. That's that, that mystery once again, isn't it? That you and I have to, have to simply be content with. Not an explanation of. But the mystery. How does God become man? And yet he does. And only by faith. Can that even, in the smallest amount, be comprehended? Only with with mustard seed faith do we really grab hold and grasp the amazing truth. God sent forth his Son. And it's one thing to think about that, isn't it? In, in terms of perhaps Christ coming on the clouds of heaven. Christ descending with a great angel train. Trumpets blaring and blasting. But look at the text. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. There are some who take this and say, that, well, this gives us some justification, or this would be a proof text for the virgin birth. I'm not sure that's Paul's point. I don't think Paul's driving at that here. I think what Paul is, is seeking to, to remind us of is this. He was born of a woman, like you and I. His birth, no different than your and my birth. As I said moments ago, a miraculous conception, yes, but an ordinary birth. In all of its ordinariness, in all of its plainness, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. For the one sole purpose, to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem us. See, Paul's not, and and Paul is looking at this, you see, in the sense in the past. 
here was our former condition. We're under guardians. We're, we're enslaved to these passions. But God has sent his Redeemer. God has sent his Son to redeem us from the curse of death that we are under, from the judgment, from the condemnation. Born of a woman. Born under that law. Born under those principles, although apart from those principles. Subject to that guardian. but perfectly fulfilling that law. What an amazing thing this is that God has done. And it is because God has done this, it is because God, through His Son, by shedding His blood to the point of death, has brought us back that we Stand as those who receive adoption. See, that's what Paul is getting at. What is our present situation? Are we under law? Paul's been, no. Are we enslaved to those basic principles? No. Why? Because we have a Redeemer. What has the Redeemer done? Given us a standing before God. A standing that he uses the word adoption for. A new name, new legal standing, new family relationship. In our Westminster Shorter Catechism, we read the following. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We go back to the confession of faith in its explanation of adoption. It reads, All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, to have his name put upon them, to receive the spirit of adoption, to have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We are adopted. And yes, we have this human entity in this world of adoption that certainly gives to us a picture it gives to us a glimpse. But let me, let me underscore, it is still but a glimpse. What happens in a present-day adoption? In that present-day adoption, there is that idea, the child is given a new name, right? There is, there is a legal thing that is done. 
Adoption is done at the courthouse. There was just a, a little blurb on the television earlier this week of a couple, I think it was in Muskegon, okay, who, who, had, who, who adopted a child. And, and it's before the judge. The judge is signing papers. There, there's a legal transaction. Because our justification is, is that legal thing that God does to wipe away our sin because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He adopts us. A legal thing happens. Our name is changed. We're placed into a new family. But you know, there is one thing. And I don't mean this to, to be hurtful to anybody here who has adopted children, but, but it's just simply the stark reality. We can never give that child our spirit. We, we can't recreate that child's mind. We can't recreate that child's heart. We can't recreate the child's image. So yes, we have this, this legal thing of adoption and, and the new name and the new standing and all of that, yes. But it's only a glimpse because the one thing that God does beyond those when it says that we are adopted as his children is this. God sends forth his spirit. And the power and weight of that God sending forth his spirit that's listed in this verse is the same as the power and weight that is given to God sent forth his son. See, do you believe in the historical reality that God sent forth his son? Well, of course we do. Do you believe in the historic reality of the fact that God has sent forth His Spirit? Now, don't be thinking, you see, well, okay, that's, that's the Holy Spirit, which really isn't God. No! Athanasian Creed. We, we don't separate out these. God sends forth Himself. When we are adopted, through the redemption of Christ, God's spirit, God's heart, God's mind is what God sends into our life. See, we're totally recreated. We're remade. That's why, what does God call this? But that we are born again. Not with that old nature. We're born again with His nature. Romans chapter 8, 29, what is God at work doing? Transforming us into the glorious image of His Son. How does that happen? Through the Spirit that God has sent forth into your heart and into your life. So that we are transformed, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. We are changed to the very core of our being. We become heirs of God. We become co-heirs with Christ. There is a sense of equality that God is bringing forth that we ought to just marvel at. This is what God has done for me? Yes. God has adopted me. Not just in a legal way. 
But his adoption is so thorough, so complete. Because he sent forth his spirit to remake me. To reform me. To re-image me. Into the image of Christ. His son. Therein, once again, lies the connection as to why we keep talking about adoption as sons, adoption as sons. Why? Because we're being remade into the image of his son. Not the image of his mother. The image of his son. People of God. Understand. of God's love. The purpose of God's love. So that you and I might cry out, Abba, Father. Jesus Christ, while here upon earth, spoke Aramaic. In Aramaic, the word for father is Abba. It was new. The Jews never considered Yahweh, Elohim, as their father. But you see, through Christ, they had the privilege now of addressing Elohim, Yahweh, the Adonai, his father. The other word that we don't translate here into the original, father, is Greek, pater. The Greeks had no concept of this as well. Those of you, we, we in our Sunday school class a week ago, we we're, were looking at the, the mythology of, of Greece. They have no concept of that. These gods are all angry. These gods are all upset. These gods are, are all far and remote into the Gentile mind. Here comes Christ. No, you must think of God as Father. The Father says, it's time to eat. Father calls and says, come to my table. Father says, come and die. Come in faith. Dine in faith. Eat and drink in faith. And as we do so, these things, it is these blessings it is these assurances. It is this peace. It is this comfort. It is this hope. That God, our Father, our Abba, pours out into our hearts. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you for reminding us again of who we are 
in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.